We have a very special guest with us today who has fast become the go-to person on all things Edward II and Isabella of France. So can we please welcome Catherine Warner. Hello Catherine. Hi, good morning Sharon. Hi, it's really lovely to, to see you and thanks so much for inviting me. You're welcome. Derek and I were discussing who to invite for Edward II and I was like, well, there's only really one person. <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you. As I can attest by my bookshelf. Edward II, Isabella, the rise and fall of a medieval family, which is about the dispensers. If you don't know it about the era of Edward II, it's probably not worth knowing. Although I am sure there is still more to find out because there always is, isn't there? The more you read, the more you research, the more there is. Absolutely. I mean, I've been studying Edward for, what, getting on for 19 years now, and I, I still find out new things about him I didn't know before, you know, looking at documents and, and so on. So it's it's still very, very exciting, and I still have that that passion to keep out, to keep finding more about him. <laughs> That's brilliant. After 19 years of research, to still want to find more. That's fantastic. So can you give us a brief background of Edward II and Isabella of France and why their story is so fascinating to you? Edward II was uh, the King of England from 1307 to 1327. So he was born in 1284 and he was the fourth but oldest surviving son of Edward I, who's often known as, as Longshank. And in 1308, he married Isabella of France, who was the daughter of uh, Philip IV, King of France, and Joan, who was uh, the Queen of Navarre, a small kingdom in, in northern Spain. Uh, she was much younger than he was. She was probably born in 1295. Their marriage was arranged at the end of the 1290s, basically because their, their fathers, Edward I of England and Philip IV of France, had spent the entire second half of the 1290s at war with each other. So Edward and Isabella's future marriage was arranged to seal a peace treaty between England and France. Um, as, as we often find in the Middle Ages, of course, you know, royal marriages were arranged. They had nothing whatsoever to do with, with the wishes of the two participants. So Isabella was only about three or four years old when she knew that she would have to marry Edward. She knew for her whole life that she was destined to, to be the Queen of England. So Edward succeeded his father in 1307 when he was mm. 23. And then a few months later, in 1308, he married Isabella. Um, Edward's reign is quite endlessly fascinating because it was just so incredibly turbulent. He was the first King of England forced to abdicate his throne. So in January 1327, when he'd reigned for 19 and a half years, he was forced to abdicate to his and Isabella's 14-year-old son, Edward III. Uh, so this was the first time this has ever happened in, in English history. He'd been threatened with deposition throughout his reign. I think what's quite telling is that until Edward became king, no English earl had been executed since 1076. That was Walthy off, uh, executed by William the Conqueror. In Edward's reign and its immediate aftermath, which is when Queen Isabella was, was ruling England for, for their son, Edward III, who was still a teenager, no fewer than six earls were executed in, in those few years of history. So I think that just kind of tells you everything about what was going on in, in Edward's reign. It's a, a very turbulent and dramatic era of love and hate and revenge and murder and jealousy and uh, and it ends with this fabulous murder mystery of whether Edward was actually murdered in 1327 or, or not. So I, I discovered Edward in, in 2004, in uh, October 2004, and I've just been fascinated by him ever since. And I've uh, made it my life's work to, to tell as many people as much about Edward II and, as I possibly can. Yeah, I mean, I, I must declare that from the start, I'm the kind of village idiot as far as Edward II is concerned, because I was saying to Sharon earlier, I, I've just got the kind of Victorian or pre-modern view of, of Edward, which, you know, is is the classic view. And so anything you tell me is probably going to be, if not news, then it'll be uh, interesting to me because it'll be different and it'll help to explain the reign. Obviously, that you've referred to the marriage, which is clearly central to the reign. 
the the impression we get the popular image is that it wasn't wasn't really a very happy marriage to say the least what's your view about the marriage what was what was it like well it it ended catastrophically badly it has to be <laughs> so isabella went to france her homeland in 1325 uh, ended up raising a force of mercenaries came back to england and then ended up forcing edward's uh, abdication in favor of their son so Yes, it, it ended incredibly badly. But um, in my view, the, the usual narrative of their marriage is a very simplistic one that, you know, because it ended badly, it, it must have been a disaster from start to finish. But, you know, I think that's a very simplistic way of, of looking at things. And for myself, you know, looking looking at their marriage, it, had actually, it was actually a, a pretty happy or at the very least mutually affectionate and, and supportive marriage for you know for a very long time so by, um, by the time of Edward's abdication in January 1327 they'd been married for 19 years their marriage was actually a lot longer than I think people expect they had four children together Isabella also seems to have had a miscarriage at, at one point uh, she might even have given birth to another daughter who who, who died or, or very young or was was stillborn so she was pregnant you know five or six times and they seem to have spent a lot of time together. One reason a lot of people think that their marriage must have been disastrous is, well, partly because of, of, of how it ended in Edward's, uh, Isabella's very important role in, in Edward's downfall and abdication. But it's also because through, uh, throughout his adult life, Edward had a succession of what are usually called his, his male favourites, you know, men who were perhaps his lovers. Mm. And I think therefore a lot of people assume that, you know, he was, you know, therefore gay and then couldn't possibly have been in love with Isabella or, you know, fulfilled any of her needs. But, you know, yes, again, I, I think actually that uh, he was perhaps more bisexual than, than gay and their marriage does seem to have been uh, a mutually affectionate one. So in 1325, when Isabella left for, for France and she wouldn't return you know, for another 18 months and then it was at the head of an army, she sent Edward a letter and in the letter, she called him my very sweetheart five times. So this is a really like affectionate and a nice letter that we still have from her. And then nearly a year later, when she had refused to, to return to Edward, she sent a letter to the Archbishop of Canterbury referring to Edward as my very dear and very sweet Lord and friend, which is highly unconventional. So conventional would have just been merely my very dear Lord, which wouldn't say anything about her feelings. But calling him her, her very dear and very sweet lord and friends implies that she had strong feelings for him. So Isabella had basically issued Edward with an ultimatum. So he was perhaps in love or infatuated or in some way dependent on a man called Hugh Dispenser the Younger, who was his chamberlain and became the, the last and the most powerful uh, of Edward's male favourites and ended up dominating English politics uh, throughout most of the 1320s made himself the richest and most powerful man in England and Wales. And he was quite a malevolent figure, I think we can safely say. And Isabella hated Dispenser and was, I think, genuinely frightened of him. So when Isabella was in was in France, safely at the court of her brother, Charles IV of France, she issued Edward with an ultimatum that basically said, send Dispenser away from court or I will not return to you. And she had their son in France with her, the future Edward III, and she, and she said, yeah. our son won't return to you either. And I, and I think that most probably this was a genuine ultimatum. And she was expecting Edward to send Dispenser away from him. But Edward didn't. So this left Isabella with, with very little option but to stay in France and to ally with some of uh, Edward's baronial enemies who were then in exile on the continent. And then uh, 18 months later, this resulted in Edward's forced abdication. It's interesting that it depends whether you put the cart or the horse first, doesn't it, in terms of... There's all sorts of issues about what she was doing in France, but yes. ignoring that for a minute, what you're saying is that her attitude to Edward was a positive one. I think you get things like this. We've mentioned it before, where how things turn out at the end dictates how we view mm. somebody's entire life or marriage. You know, if someone dies young, they were always poorly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> There's no evidence of that, but they must have been always poorly to die young. And you get that with marriages as well. If it ended bad, yes. it must have always been bad. And of course, we all know it doesn't happen like that. You... Yeah, I think that that's an excellent point, Sharon. And, and I think, yeah, because Edward II ended up being deposed, then, you know, his whole life and his whole reign is then just dismissed with, as though it was like absolutely nothing but a, a disaster from start to finish. And yeah, 
you know, as though his marriage was nothing but a disaster. And I find this really odd because, I mean, surely we've all had relationships that, that went wrong and ended. That didn't mean that, that we were unhappy for, you know, 10 or 20 years or whatever, but the whole relationship. I, I don't know why people have this kind of simplistic view. Yeah, I actually do blame the Victorians. No, I must admit, on this podcast, they've got a lot of stick, the Victorians. <laughs> this moralistic attitude to history. So every history they wrote about, they had these moral guidelines put in, which is why Edward II gets such a totally bad press, because it's yeah. totally Im his life was totally immoral as far as the Victorians were concerned. So he was totally the bad guy, just like King John was. I mean, King John more or less was totally the bad guy, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's taken a long time for historians to start looking at certain characters from history and reevaluating them. And we've only had it in the last 20 or 30 years, I think, yeah. where we've looked at these stories again and gone, actually, it isn't black and white. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I think Edward II has the kind of the misfortune of kind of coming between two much more successful kings who reigned for much longer. You know, his father, Edward I, his son, Edward III, who were much, much better rulers in every way and especially were much better war leaders. And I think he's just suffered by comparison. So his reign often often gets written off as this kind of like short, disastrous interlude. But it's far more interesting than that. And I, I think we can also learn a lot from, from the kings whose reigns were, were less successful. And, you know, plus, of course, all the drama of these of these failed reigns. Yeah, yes. sometimes. I mean, like King John's, they're much more interesting. Yes. Edward's reign is marked by two favourites, Hugh Dispenser in the later years and Piers Gaveston in the early years. Now, if I remember rightly, Gaveston and Isabella actually got on quite well, didn't they? Yes. So one feature of Edward II's reign, I mean, even in Edward's own lifetime, really, and, and certainly carrying on 700 years later today, is to kind of to mix up these, these two royal favourites mm. and act as though they were basically the same person, as though everything about them was, was exactly the same. But of course, they were very, very different people. So Piers Gaveston was something of an outsider. He was a nobleman. He came from the area of Bayonne in the, in the far southwest of France, which was part of the, the French territory, the, the Duchy of Aquitaine, that was ruled by the kings of England for, for much of the Middle Ages. So he, he was noble. A lot of people seem to assume that he was low born. He certainly wasn't. He arrived in England with his father in the late 1290s. And Edward I then put him in his son's household to be his companion and actually as a kind of role model Gaveston was slightly older than Edward not not too much older but yeah he was he was at to act as one of Edward's noble companions and we're told by various chroniclers that when when Edward saw him you know he was just in his mid-teens at the time that he fell so much in love with Gaveston that they created a bond of of everlasting love we can't prove conclusively that the two men were lovers I, I do think it's very likely so I think because Isabella later really hated Hugh Despenser the younger, then the assumption is often made that she must have hated Gaveston as well. But Despenser was actually a quite a malevolent figure who did everything he could to sideline Isabella and to limit her influence over her husband and over English politics. But but Gaveston wasn't like that. Gaveston was something more of an outsider and didn't really have much interest in English politics. He enjoyed the riches and the prestige that came from being the king's favourite and perhaps his lover. But he didn't have any real political ambitions. And I think that when Isabella married Edward in, in 1308, Gaveston was already in his life then and, and had been for quite a long time. And I don't think that actually she really disliked Gaveston. I, I, I haven't found any evidence of, of that at all. I think actually they might have got on quite well. And I think what we also have to remember is that Isabella was only 12 when she married Edward. Yes. And, you know, he was 23. There was a massive age difference. Isabella didn't become pregnant until four years after she married after she married Edward when, when she was 16. So it's highly likely that they didn't live together as, as husband and wife for at least two, perhaps three or four years, years of their marriage. And again, there's this assumption that she must have seen Gaveston as, as her rival for Edward's affections. And it's again this, I think, rather simplistic idea. It's as though Edward's heart was a cake. And because Gaveston had a slice of cake, 
that automatically meant there was less <laughs> left for Isabella. But, you know, I don't think, you know, people's relationships really work like that. And when you look at they had, was it four children? Yes. And also another important point is that Isabella was already four months pregnant with the future Edward III when Gaveston mm. was killed by some of Edward's disgruntled barons in, in June 1312. Edward III was born in November 1312. And Gaveston had, had also had a, a child with uh, with his wife, who was one of Edward II's many nieces, in January. 1312 and interestingly enough both of the both of the men fathered illegitimate children mm. so whatever the, the nature of their relationship it, it didn't impede their relationships with their respective wives and it also seems that they both had you know outside relationships with other women as well I mean you know they, they must have done the mothers of their of their illegitimate children so again I you know I think it's, it's just more complicated than than we might think mm. there's a lot of hostility to Gaveston though from from some of the nobles was that was that jealousy or did he do anything in particular which annoyed individuals? An interesting question because when I look at what Gaveston actually did, I find it hard to to comprehend and explain the intense hostility that the barons and a lot of the, the common people of England showed towards him. Because, you know, the, his actions don't really seem to merit this kind of absolute loathing that, that people felt towards him. Mm. Several chroniclers do point out that he was very supercilious and, and arrogant and kind of looked down his nose at people. So I think he just, you know, he just really got on, on people's nerves. Rubbed them up the wrong way. <laughs> he kind of like swanned around court going, oh, look at me, aren't I great? Because, you know, Edward made him the Earl of Cornwall, which up, up to that point had only been a royal title. So I think that there was mm. a lot of jealousy towards Gaveston. He was he was often at court. He had a lot of influence over Edward. So we learn from one or two chroniclers that uh, that Edward would ignore the other barons and would only talk to Gaveston. So you know he was always there. And though Gaveston was a nobleman by birth, you know he, he his parent his father wasn't an earl. His grandfather wasn't an earl. Hmm. So I think that there was a lot of feeling that he was you know he was in a position that he really his birth uh, didn't really merit. And in February 1308, he played a very prominent and significant role in in Edward and Isabella's coronation in Westminster Abbey. So in the procession into Westminster Abbey before the coronation. He he was just in front of Edward and Isabella, so it was therefore in prime position and was also dressed in royal purple, which I think, you know, really kind of offended people. <laughs> well, f formal occasions were very important, weren't they, in, in that time period yeah. in, in setting the tone and establishing a person's a sort of street cred, as it were, <laughs> amongst the nobility. Yeah. What, was he the one? What, was he the one who came up with sort of nicknames for some of the barons, or was that somebody else? I have some vague recollection. Yes, you're, you're right, Derek. Although the only one that was actually recorded uh, contemporarily was the was the nickname that he gave to Guy Beecham, Earl of Warwick. He called him the Black Dog of Arden. Mm. Um, so the other nicknames that he might have come up with for the Earls were actually only recorded later in the 14th century. So I'm not clear whether they really were Gaveston's inventions. Yeah. They might well have been. It, it does really seem to me like he summed his nose at the, the yeah. barons and no respect for people who are of higher birth than him. And I think that just irritated and offended a lot of people in a world, of course, that was intensely hierarchical. Mm. Yes. People thought that Gaveston didn't know his rightful place and, and got above himself. I'm thinking back to Henry III's reign when the Savoyards came over and the Lusignans came over. Yeah. He was a foreigner. Do you think there was a bit of that as well, as far as the English were concerned? I think there might well have been, you know, because although he was a subject of the English crown because he came from the, the part of France... Mm. That was then ruled by by the English kings. He he was, I think, sometimes seen as yeah. foreign. This was quite hypocritical mm. on the part of some of the Earls, who themselves are Italian mothers or French mothers. But I, I think there was also a touch of xenophobia as well. Perhaps he might have been, you know, in some ways, kind of very southern, and and the way he spoke French would have been quite different from the way mm. the English barons and, mm. and the elite spoke French at the time. I think he would have also sounded very foreign. You almost think that maybe the English barons should have been told, be careful what you wish for, because having got rid of Piers Gaveston, they then came across somebody who, who was uh, almost infinitely worse because apparently his, and no doubt you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but his influence was one which was more destructive than Gaveston's. Gaveston was more supportive yes. of Edward. Yes, no, you're, you're right, Derek. Yes, so uh, so Gaveston was killed by some of the English barons in 1312. Edward, in fact, didn't bury him until the beginning of 1315, two and a half years <laughs> later. Um, his body was embalmed, I hasten to add. 
Glad to know that. There, there is uh, several comments by chroniclers that Edward had, had sworn not to bury Gaveston until he got revenge on the, the barons who had killed him. In fact, that didn't happen until 1322. So he finally buried Gaveston two and a half years later. And then he kind of began relationships with two young English knights called Roger Damery and Hugh Audley, who both came from Oxfordshire, who were the favourites in, in the middle years of Edward's reign, but are considerably less famous than, than the two Mm. Big male favourites, Gaveston and Dispenser. So then along comes Hugh Dispenser, the younger. He was an English nobleman by birth. He was a grandson of the Earl of Warwick. And he had been married to Edward's eldest niece since 1306. And this was arranged by her grandfather, Edward I. So a lot of modern writers assume that it was Edward II who arranged it. Uh, he didn't. Dispenser had been married to Eleanor de Clare uh, since 1306. Her brother was the Earl of Gloucester. Um, a very powerful and very wealthy young English nobleman who was killed at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314 when Edward was heavily defeated by Robert Bruce, King of Scotland. The Earl of Gloucester left no children, so his heirs were his three sisters, including Hugh Dispenser's wife, Eleanor. And one third of the, the vast Gloucester inheritance like catapulted Dispenser into influence and power. And in 1318, he was appointed as, as Edward's Chamberlain, which was a position of great power and responsibility because the Chamberlain controlled access to the king, both in person and in writing. And it seems like the barons in Parliament actually put Dispenser next to Edward against Edward's own wishes because he didn't like Dispenser at all. He didn't trust him. But somehow when the two men began spending lots of time together in 1318 and 1319, Edward became very dependent on, on uh, Dispenser in some way. And it's possible that the two men became became lovers. And a lot of the chroniclers comment on how Edward uh, loved Dispenser completely, was infatuated with him, trusted him completely. And then I think the barons realised to their absolute horror that what they had done was to, by getting rid of Gaveston, was to open the door to someone who was far, far worse. Because Dispenser was an English nobleman. He was very much an insider. He was related to the English earls by, by blood or by marriage. And unlike Gaveston, he wanted political power very badly. So he entered up dominating English politics for the next few years. When Edward went to war against his brother-in-law, the King of France in the early 1320s, we can see from Dispenser's own correspondence that he was the one who was directing the English war effort. Mm. And far worse than that, he was an extortionist uh, par excellence. He was a, <laughs> an equal opportunities extortionist. He um, took money and lands from you know men and women and rich and poor. So he was very much into blackmail, extortion, false imprisonment. He was briefly exiled from England by his enemies in 1321 and became a pirate in the English Channel. I mean, literally <laughs> a pirate. That's the kind of man he was. Uh, but he was quite dangerous. He was highly manipulative, highly intelligent and ruthless and wasn't scared to, to hurt people, to imprison them, to harm them, even to execute them, uh, basically to get what he wanted. So, uh, yes, by, by killing Gaveston, the barons only just made matters a lot worse for themselves, for Edward, and, and most importantly, for, for the Kingdom of England. Why did Edward rely so much on the dispensers? Because you get every now and then that Edward probably didn't want to be king and didn't actually like being king. He liked, you know, the hunting and things like that, but actually ruling wasn't his strong point. So is that what it was? He let the dispensers do the bits he didn't like. Actually, you put your finger on it, Sharon. Yeah, absolutely. So Edward was a very unconventional man by the standards of the time. He enjoyed uh, engaging in what was then called rustic mm. pursuits, thatching roofs, digging ditches. You know, play, you know, doing woodwork and metalwork, going swimming. You know, this 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 kind of thing. So I think he just liked to, to kind of check out of ruling. You know, I mean, he, he hated attending Parliament. He just found it really boring. It just wasn't his his thing at all. And I just think that with Hugh Dispenser, he'd found someone who was, who was actually... Uh, very, very much interested in, in ruling and, and, you know, enriching himself at the same time. So I think Edward just almost kind of checked out and, and let Dispenser get on with it. And so Dispenser's father was, was still alive. He was Hugh Dispenser the Elder. Edward II made him Earl of Winchester in 1322. He was 20-odd years older than Edward and had all, always been a close ally of Edward, perhaps a friend and a kind of father figure. But until his son became Edward's favourite, he didn't have the same kind of influence that he uh, that he enjoyed later on. So it was really, it was Dispenser the Younger, I would suggest, was Edward's lover, perhaps, or the object of his infatuation and his trust and love. But uh, Hugh's father also became very uh, influential. And they both ended up being executed by Queen Isabella and her allies after her invasion in 1326. 
these men are all older, aren't they? It's like big brothers that he never had because Alfonso died when just after he was born and things like that. I wonder if there's anything in that. Dispenser was a bit younger, not not much younger, but they, they were quite close oh. in age. But yeah, Gaveston w- was older. Dispenser's father was, was obviously quite a lot older. Yeah, as, as you just said, Sharon, Edward had three older brothers who, who died in childhood. They were John, Henry and Alfonso. They died at the ages of five, six and, and ten. And it's just interesting to contemplate, really, like what would have happened if one mm. of them had lived and you know had been alive in 1307 what one of them would have become king of england instead and then the whole of english history would be would be very different just get this idea that edward the first was always critical of edward the second so you wonder how many times he got if alfonso was still here he would have done it like this i think it's also also it was also perhaps strange for edward that obviously he knew he had three older brothers but he couldn't have remembered any of them mm. um because two of them died no. long before he was born and then alfonso Alfonso, the third brother, died when Edward was only four months old, making him heir to the throne. So it must have, I think, been quite strange to hear if Alfonso would have done that properly. Yeah, especially given how Alfonso was 10 when he died. So he would have had a personality. They would have known who he was going to be if he'd lived. Absolutely. And isn't it a great what if that England could have had a king called Alfonso? Yeah. What a tragedy for us all that he died. <laughs> <laughs> So you said right at the start, it's a very turbulent reign, lots of executions later on, and of course these two great favourites. So where does the blame, in a sense, if we can use that word, we probably can't, but where does the responsibility lie for the problems of the reign? Is it something in Edward's own character, inclinations, or or does it happen to him? I think that Edward must be held primarily responsible for, for all the things that went wrong in his reign, though I, I also would like to just say at this point that he did actually inherit a difficult legacy from from his father. So when Edward I died in 1307, he left debts of something like £200,000, which in modern terms must be billions. Um, There was a kind of an ongoing war with with Scotland that, you know, no English king would ever actually really conquer Scotland. There were somewhat uneasy relationships with both the Pope and with the the King of France, you know, the most powerful man in Europe. So Edward was left a difficult legacy, but then it also has to be said that he was very much not the man to to fill his father's boots. So he wasn't a war leader uh, in any way whatsoever. He was was one of these men, I think, who was born to be a follower. But unfortunately for him, he was born into a hereditary monarchy, uh, was the oldest surviving son of the king. And it was just his misfortune. And then also, more importantly, his subject's misfortune, that he was the the man who, who succeeded his father. And throughout his reign, he just lurched from one crisis to the next. And despite this difficult legacy, I mean, it really has to be said that that most of these crises were of his own making. Firstly, because he was the kind of man who, who who was ruled by his heart and not by his head, so was dominated by his his own personal feelings and vendettas, but also his his loves, you know, for especially for Gaveston and, and then later for Dispenser. Hmm. And he also had no capacity whatsoever to learn from his mistakes. So we had the whole Gaveston situation. Gaveston was exiled from England three times. Uh, Edward brought him back on every occasion. Then 10 years later, Hugh Dispenser was also exiled. Edward brought him back and then things just got worse worse and I think that you know by 1326 I just think you know Queen Isabella and and probably many others just realized that things just you know were never going to change that even if they killed the Spencer then you know Edward would mourn for a while then he'd get in get himself into a position where he was stronger where he'd be able to take revenge on everybody who killed the Spencer then he'd get a new male favorite who would be also awful and then the whole cycle was just going to go on and on and on and in 1326 Edward was only 42 and his father had lived to be 68 his grandfather Henry III lived to be 65 so they were looking at another 25 years <laughs> I think, yes this this is just Edward's fault <laughs> Oh, <laughs> As you said earlier, he's sort of sandwiched between these two kings. And I guess when he rolled up, his subjects were thinking, my goodness, this is no Edward I. And when Edward III came along, they were saying, thank goodness he's come along. He's better than Edward yeah. II. Yeah. Wasn't there some great famine or something in the early 1300s? Yes. Yeah. So the, the weather was, was really awful in um, the second half of 1314 and the whole of 1315, even into 1316, it hardly ever stopped raining across northern Europe. And this, of course, then destroyed the crops, which were just lying in waterlogged fields. 
So the harvest failed catastrophically across England, but you know also across Northern Europe but for two, two or three years on the trot. And this led to a period called the Great Famine between 1315 and 1318. And it's, it's thought that up to 10% of the entire population died of starvation or malnutrition. Um, so Edward tried to do what he could about this, but you know this was just a, a natural disaster. You know, but even the climate was was against him. Because <laughs> yeah, if it was the whole of Europe, you couldn't invo- import grain from anywhere else to feed people. You know, sometimes if it's just England, you can get it from somewhere else. But if it's the whole of Europe, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the 14th century is not a great place to be alive because you know you get past the Great Famine, and 30 years later, along comes the first pandemic of the Black Death. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so his reign is. Is it an abject failure or were there some good points? Well, I think the political and the military <laughs> sense, it, it was an absolute disaster. So there was only one military victory in, in Edward's entire reign. That was the Battle of Boroughbridge. And that was against the English. <laughs> this victory came against some of Edward's own barons and Edward himself wasn't even there. This is also very revealing. So I'm just trying to think of, of good points about Edward's reign. And I think one one good point was his interest in education. So he's the first of only two people in the whole of history who founded colleges at both Oxford and Cambridge universities. Mm. The other one was Henry VI, who was Edward's great, great, great grandson. Edward was also involved in the founding of a university in Dublin in 1312 that he supported. It, it didn't last very long, but he, he was you know involved in that. So... I think his interest in education is 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 very um you know nice and interesting and positive. And one of the very few other things I can I can think about was um in 1325-26, I've looked at Edward's accounts extensively and he actually hired several women in his chamber, which is absolutely unheard of because great households at the time were always always consisted entirely of men, except for the lady of the house's uh, personal attendants and, and the nurses of the, of the children. So just to hire women in, in the first place was, was uh, you know, really spectacular. And Edward II actually paid the women the same wages that, that he paid the men. Now, like, we, women only usually got paid half of, of what men were paid. So I think, you know, this is 650 years before the Equal Pay Act was passed. You know, I think Edward in some ways was, was very progressive. I mean, he was kind of ahead of his time in some ways, like, like this, you know, like paying women the same amount or being openly a, a lover of men, for example, or, you know, going outside and enjoying the fresh air and physical exercise and swimming. I mean, like nobody at the time enjoyed swimming. Nobody Nobody ever thought about doing that. Or in, in 1315, du- actually during the, the endless rain of that year, Edward went on a swimming and rowing holiday in the pen with what one chronicler calls a great company of common people. So, you know, he was very much a king with the common touch, which I think would be appreciated nowadays, but but was not in the strictly hierarchical world that he lived in. This was very much not appreciated. I do think that Edward probably makes more sense to us than he did 700 years ago. Yes, none of his uh, none of his good points would have been regarded as good points, perhaps in the in the period he lived in. You can imagine that he would have felt quite confused and lonely to some extent because he had these ideas and this lifestyle, and nobody thought it was any good, and he was just like he was just trying, bless him. <laughs> I just wonder, like, you know, to what extent Edward had had an awareness of himself as someone who is different from other people. The men around him, for the most part, were only attracted to women. Um, He seems to have liked women and men, and, and particularly men. Or the fact that he liked digging ditches when in, instead of going jousting, for example. I mean, this made him very unusual. And I, I, would just love, I would just love to know how Edward saw himself. There's no way of knowing, unfortunately. He probably did think of himself as a square peg in a round hole. <laughs> Let's come to Thomas of Lancaster, because he was obviously a very prominent person in the reign. And it had a big influence on what happened. Uh, not necessarily in a good way, but... But um, when he rebelled finally against Edward, what were the motives for that? What, why, was, why was he so at odds with Edward? Because I think, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at the, in the early days of the reign, he was, a, he was a good supporter of Edward. So how did they fall out? So Thomas of Lancaster was, was Edward's cousin. He was the, the first son and heir of, of Edmund of Lancaster, who was the only brother of Edward I. And he was about six years older than Edward. And yes, at, uh, at the start of the reign, Derek, they, he, Thomas seems to have been a, a, a supporter and, and friend of, of Edward. And during the first great crisis of the reign um, in 1308, when Edward had to, to exile Gaveston, Thomas seems to have supported him quite ex- extensively. 
And then something went wrong between the two cousins in or about late 1308. And, and this is one of the great puzzles of the reign because we don't really know why. Because Thomas was the richest man in England. He held five earldoms. You know, he was Earl of Lancaster, Leicester, Derby, Lincoln and Salisbury. He had a, an income of £11,000 a year. Well done. I always forget Derby. When I'm saying those, I always forget Derby for some reason. I'm like, I know there's a fifth one. So well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so at a time when most people earned probably less than £5 a year, Thomas earned £11,000 a year. So he was incredibly rich, uh, incredibly powerful, and also royal on both sides of his family because his mother was the uh, the niece of, of Louis IX of, of France. And it's really odd because if Edward and Thomas had had a big argument or quarrel in late 1308, it would have come to the attention of at least one of the contemporary chroniclers, but it didn't. So this is really puzzling. So somehow in the course of 1309, Thomas moved into this position of opposition to Edward II. It seems to have happened fairly gradually. So I'm just wondering if they had some kind of minor spat and they were both just too proud or stubborn just to, to make it up afterwards. So over time, they became more and more hostile to each other. And in 1312, Thomas of Lancaster took the main responsibility for the death of Piers Gaveston. And he knew that this was the one thing that Edward would never, ever forgive him for. And then all the contemporary chroniclers comment on this, on this, on this hatred that, that then developed be, between these, these two cousins. And throughout much of the 1310s, they were they were really, really at, at, logger, at, at loggerheads and they both kind of marched around England with large armed forces kind of ignoring each other. And so this was really like dis disrupting um, the whole situation in England. So a, a group of barons and, and bishops managed to get the two men together in 1318 and they, they sealed a peace treaty, which only lasted for about 13 months. By this point, they, they just couldn't talk to each other anymore. Whatever had gone wrong, it had just gone horribly wrong. And Edward just refused to forgive uh, Thomas of Lancaster for Gaveston's death and swore to get revenge on him. So they, they moved back into opposition. And then in 1321, there was a, a rebellion, which Edward II himself called the Contrarian Rebellion, which was basically aimed at Hugh de Spencer in South Wales. So de Spencer was, was Lord of Glamorgan. This was his and his wife's inheritance from her brother, the Earl of Gloucester. So Dispenser just kind of like bombs into South Wales and starts annoying everybody and disrupting everything. So the, the Marcher Lords uh, launched a rebellion against him and by extension Edward, who was supporting him. And though Thomas of Lancaster wasn't a, himself a Marcher Lord, he, by this stage he just you know hated Edward so much that he was willing to, to support any kind of rebellion against him. So he was seen as, as the leader of this baronial rebellion. Um, to cut a very long story short, a royal army not led by Edward, uh, defeated the contrarian rebels at the Battle of Boroughbridge in 1322. And Thomas of Lancaster was then executed outside his own castle of Pontefract in, uh, six days uh, after the battle. So I, I do find with politics of this era, because there, of course there was no such thing yet as political parties, so there was you know no party line to toe. So politics was was intensely personal, and the the powerful men in England just kind of acted on whatever suited their own purposes. Mm. So it can actually be quite difficult to to track their careers because they just they seem to be supportive of Edward at one point, and then the next year suddenly they're his enemies. Like yes. Yeah. The Earl of Arundel, for example, was one of the men present at, at Piers Gaveston's death in 1312. But then in 1326, he was executed by Queen Isabella as a strong supporter of Edward. And this this is how it can how it goes in Edward II reign. It's just, you know, what, what suits my purpose and my own interests at any given time. So I, I don't see Thomas of Lancaster's opposition to Edward II as particularly principled. I just think it was caused by, you know, hatred, jealousy. Yeah, just just personal feelings, really. I think it's cropped up several times on the podcast with different reigns in this medieval period that it is about what suits a particular family, what is in the interests of yeah. Arundel's family or Warwick's mm. family or whoever. And as you say, it does make it rather difficult to track whether somebody actually supports the king or doesn't, yeah. because that changes yeah. as circumstances change. Do you think Thomas's motivation was perhaps strengthened by his claim to the throne or was that, you know, neither here nor there? I'm not sure, really. I think, you know, he, I think he was very aware of himself as, as royal because, because he was royal on both sides. 
Mm. As well as being Edward II's cousin, he was also the uncle of, of Edward's Queen Isabella, rather confusingly. So his his older half-sister was, was the Queen of Navarre in, in her own right, then married Philip IV, King of France. Um, I'm not sure really whether Thomas would have thought of himself as having a claim to the throne because, you know, Edward II had two sons. He also had two younger half-brothers who were the sons of Edward I from, from his second marriage. So he was quite a way down 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 the list of claimants to the throne. So I'm not, I'm not sure whether that was, was one of his motivations. I wonder if he thought that he should have been Edward's leading advisor, though. Yes. That he was the one who should be listened to more because he was so close to the throne and he probably thought actually that dispenser's position is where I should be. Yes I think uh, almost certainly Thomas thought that his nose was put out of joint firstly by Gaveston and then and then later by dispenser he should have been Edward's rightful advisor. He doesn't seem to have visited court much at all after 1308 he just seems to have skulked at Pontefract in in, in, uh, in Yorkshire his, his favourite residence. It is a nice castle. <laughs> <laughs> yes the, the painting of it before it was knocked down is absolutely glorious. Yeah yeah it is. It is a constant theme, I think, of the whole Middle Ages, that you get these, obviously that they've been called overmighty subjects and so on at various times. But it always amuses me a bit that they go off in a huff because their position is not what they feel it ought to be. And then the very absence from court only <laughs> makes it worse. Yeah. And then they get to the point where there is no way back. Yeah. <laughs> it happens a number of times. I wonder if they go away expecting for things to change a little bit and they're waiting for the change and it just doesn't happen or it changes in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> or they're just waiting for somebody to say, oh, come back, please, we need you. And it just doesn't happen. <laughs> just waiting to be begged to come back. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So I think we've done a fabulous job of covering a lot of Edward II now, haven't we? Yes. But Isabella. Oh, yes. Was there a particular thing that made her refuse to return to England? Do you think she went to France expecting to refuse to return or... It was something she decided on when she got there. It's a really good question because it would be really great to know. It's like, when did Isabella decide to act against Edward and what did she think she wanted to do? So she left England in March 1325 to negotiate a peace settlement between Edward and her brother, Charles IV of France, who had been at war with each other for the last few months. Wasn't that because Edward was going to do it, but Dispenser didn't want Edward to leave England because he thought he'd get attacked or killed while Edward was away? <laughs> So because the kings of England were also dukes of Aquitaine and Edward was Count of Pontier in northern France, his inheritance from his mother. So in this position as Duke of Aquitaine and Count of Pontier, he owed homage to the King of France as his overlord for these French territories. But Edward did not want to leave England in 1325 because it was just seething with discontent and rebellion. And Hugh Dispenser, as you said, Sharon, uh, persuaded him not to go because he was worried that he would be killed or, you know, imprisoned in, in during Edward's absence. So Edward instead made his son, the future Edward III, who was then 12, almost 13, made him Duke of Aquitaine in his place and sent him to France to, to pay homage to Charles IV. And when Isabella had her son in her custody in her homeland, that was when she issued her ultimatum to, to Edward. Like, send Dispenser away or your son and I will not return. And Edward said, Nope. So then Edward, uh, Isabella in France then began an association and alliance with some of the English barons who were who had fled from England after the failure of the Contrarian Rebellion in 1322, led by Roger Mortimer, Lord of Wigmore. So sadly, you know, we're in the 14th century, we know what people did, but we don't really usually know why they did it. So it would be absolutely fascinating to know at what point Isabella decided that she was going to use her journey to France uh, to act against Edward. And was she even acting against Edward at this point? Or was she just acting against Hugh Dispenser? I mean, in, in my view, you could actually make a case that Edward's forced abdication wasn't decided on until as late as Christmas 1326. So, you know, only, you know, barely a month before it even happened. Other writers have kind of said, you know, oh, you know, she made an alliance with Roger Mortimer when he was a prisoner in the Tower of London in 1322. And, you know, they'd already made that association. I mean, it's it's not impossible. I, I don't think it's very likely. Mm. But my take on Isabella's actions in 1325-26 is that she was genuinely hoping to reconcile with Edward. She'd just been sidelined very much by Hugh Dispenser, who were just entirely limited her political influence. So until that point, she'd actually been a very powerful politician in England. So she was a mediator 
an intercessor. She had a lot of influence over Edward. And then when the Spencer came back from his piracy in 1322, this all mostly ends. And it kind of gives this impression that Isabella had died or had entered a convent or something. She just almost disappears from, from the record. And, you know, Isabella was the daughter of two sovereigns. She'd been crowned Queen of England when she was 12 years old. She was not the kind of woman who was going to, to tolerate this kind of behaviour, you know, and, and, and good for her. But uh, yes, unfortunately, we, we can't know at what point she, she knew when she was going to act against Edward. I, I would think when she left England in March 1325, she had at least some kind of idea that she could use her absence from England in a way to kind of act against Hugh Dispenser, even if not necessarily against Edward. The interesting thing, and, and it sort of illustrates what you were saying earlier about Edward II not actually being politically a very good king a very astute king because the very last thing you should do is send the heir of the throne out of the country into the arms of somebody who might create problems yeah i mean it's crazy really it's the last thing you should do yeah. but by doing so he gave isabella uh, a much more powerful weapon than she had on her own yes I think, you know, by the autumn of 1325, that Edward had basically painted himself into a corner, you know, where all the options available mm. to him were just fraught with, with, with risk and possible danger. So I do think there's a chance that if he had gone to France by himself, that he might have been kidnapped by the English barons who were in exile over there, or he might even have mm. been assassinated. And then, you know, then, you know, 700 years later, we'd be saying like, oh, my goodness, how could he have been so stupid as to go to France? Yes. He could have sent yeah. his son instead. I think he just reached <laughs> that point in the reign where, you know, everything he did was was just going to lead to disaster in, in one way or another. I think like his main error wasn't so much just to send his son, but was to send his son unmarried. So at this point, the future Edward III was betrothed to the, the sister of the King of Castile in, in Spain, but they weren't married yet. So Isabella was able to use her son's marriage as, as, as leverage. Mm. So she made an alliance with the Count of Hainault in, in, in modern-day Belgium, whereby her son would marry the Count of Hainault's daughter, Philippa, which, of course, you know, later, later happened. Mm. And in exchange for his daughter becoming the Queen of England, the Count then provided Isabella with money so that she could pay for, for ships and mercenaries. So if the future Edward III had actually been married in 1325-26, then again, things might be very different because Isabella wouldn't have had that possibility. What about the relationship with, with Mortimer? A lot has been written about that. Yes. How do, what's your take on, on their relationship? Well, my take is that at least at first, in you know late 1325 and 26, they were political allies whose, whose aims happened to coincide they both wanted the end of Hugh Dispenser. As Mortimer had fled from England, he escaped from the Tower of London in August 1323 mm. and was at large on the continent. So basically at this point, he's, he was an important English baron and a very experienced soldier and, and administrator and leader. But at this point, he was basically just an escaped fugitive. And he wanted nothing more than to go home to get his lands back, to get, you know, to get his family back, to have his income, his political influence back. And Isabella also wanted the end of Hugh Dispenser so that she could then regain her position as Edward's wife and partner and, and queen and also, you know, as an important uh, politician. So Isabella and Mortimer's relationship has been absurdly over-romanticised by, by a lot of modern writers, unfortunately, who make out that it was like one of the greatest romances and love affairs of the Middle Ages. <laughs> I mean, there's there's really no evidence for that. Probably they, they did become lovers at some point because they did have an association for the best part of five years. And it certainly seems that Mortimer was very, very important to Isabella in the same way, perhaps, that Hugh Dispenser was very important to Edward. You know, as Edward and Dispenser were probably lovers at some point, then Isabella and Mortimer were, were probably lovers at some point. But I don't actually believe that, uh, that Isabella committed adultery. I think that if she did have a sexual relationship with Mortimer, it happened later, after, after Edward II's death. 
Yeah, she's she's often been been referred to traditionally as the she wolf of France. Does she deserve that title? Absolutely not. And and it just I'm afraid it just drives me mad. Me too. The idea of like, calling a woman a she wolf just because she stands up for herself it's just like seriously. Yeah, I think it's just horrible to refer to a woman as a she wolf just because you know it's a strong, powerful woman who you know acted outside the bounds of conventionality in in some way. And it just drives me mad that even in the 21st century, books are still being published referring to Isabel. Bella is a she-wolf. Just stop it, for goodness sake, you know, to complain about her colleague being called a she-wolf and then to perpetuate it. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that, Catherine, because I'm exactly the same. Every time I see it, All About History magazine asked me to write an article on she-wolves. That's the title. But I'm like, I don't believe that women are she-wolves just because they're strong women. I mean, I I find it very misogynist and and sexist. I think horrible. Yeah. Where where does it come from? Do you know? where, Where does that... Original. Well, it was actually, I believe, Shakespeare who uh, created the name and, and actually then applied it to Margaret of Anjou, who was the wife of Henry VI. Yes, yes. And then it was actually the poet Thomas Gray who applied it to Isabella in a poem of 1757. It's definitely not a contemporary title and yeah. <laughs> certainly not the case that Edward or Dispenser or anyone else in Isabella's no. lifetime called her that. Christopher Marlowe's play, Edward II. Yeah. Does that have a, a lot to answer for for her reputation historically? Yes, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I love, I should say that I, I love the play, but he, he very much telescopes events. And I mean, of course yeah. he had to, he was writing draft, yeah. not history. I mean, you know, I, I, I get it. But you know, I think he's very much the one who popularised the myth that Edward was murdered by Red Hot Poker, for example, which, which didn't mm. happen. Well, I, I'm glad it didn't, really, <laughs> on balance. <laughs> Horrible, grotesque thing to, to think about. Yeah. The idea that someone can come up with that as a form of, as a form of murder is actually that person needs looking at. It's fiction. <laughs> but now even in, you know, in books and online, you just see so many people giggling about it as though it's hilarious. Yeah, once something's online these days, it just has a life of its yeah, own, really. You're I mean, right. It, it's almost impossible <laughs> to stop it. It is, yeah. Who is your favourite, Edward or Isabella? Well, you know, I just, I love both of them, you know, and and I, and I do think that, unfortunately, there's often a tendency to, to set Edward and Isabella up in opposition to each other. So one of them has to be the villain and therefore the other one has to be the victim. I mean, I have a, a massive amount of sympathy and affection for, for both of them. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we can sympathise with them in both in, in, in their different ways and think they're in, in a difficult situation um so my my greatest love has always been edward so he's he's the one i would i would choose as yes my my favorite out of the two of them but yes i'm, I'm very much uh, a fan of both of them do you think that just as edward the second is seemed as as is regarded <laughs> as a kind of pale imitation of his father that the marriage between edward the second and isabella it may also be viewed as a pale imitation of the marriage of edward the first and eleanor of castile i think it often is uh, compared to that yes his, his marriage is compared to his parents marriage and it's also often compared to the marriage of his son Edward the yeah. third and Philippa of Hainaut which seems to have been a very happy marriage for, for more than 40 years so it's actually quite interesting when when you look at the, the evidence for Edward and Isabella's marriage is that they were together most of the time and on the few occasions when they were apart that they, they often sent each other letters so for example, in, in 1312, there was one period they were apart for, for less than a week. And Isabella sent Edward three letters, you know, in about five or six days. So they, they do seem to have got on very well and, and for you know, for, for a very long time. But, you know, as we were saying before, because it ended badly, you know, as Sharon said, it's like mm-hmm. the ending of something is then taken to represent the whole, which yeah. is rather un- unfortunate. I think you could also possibly argue that Edward and Isabella's family life was actually healthier yeah. than Edward I and Eleanor Castile because Edward and Eleanor appear to have been so caught up in each other and were happy to be away from their children for three or four years at a time (laughs) and even returning from crusade they dropped their child off with Eleanor's mother (laughs) and then went back home right and left her there for what was it two years or something Joan of Acre with her grandmother before recalling her and they were quite happy to leave their kids and go off I think, what was it, May 1286 and August 1289, yeah, Edward I and Eleanor of Castile left, left England and left, left their small children behind. Yeah. So the future Edward II was only two years old when they left and then was five when they returned, yeah. It was Dover, wasn't it? And you can imagine these three kids lined up at Dover. Edward wouldn't have been able to remember his parents. <laughs> it's like, oh, here's your mum and dad. Oh, I've got 
walk around. He's like, no, he's been hiding behind his nurse's legs, poor kid. Uh, I think Edward II and Isabella seem to have have had a closer relationship with their children than certainly Edward and Eleanor of Castile did. I'm not a fan of Edward I and Eleanor of Castile in, in different ways, but I think especially as parents, they're, they're not great. And, and and for that reason, I actually do really like Henry III and Eleanor of Provence, mm. who were incredibly loving and affectionate and caring yes. parents. And it makes them very human to me and, and very, very likeable. Mm, definitely. Yes, I mean, we talked a while back on the podcast about Henry III and sort of forgotten king who reigned for a long time, but hardly anybody, your man in the street doesn't doesn't know anything about him at all, really. Yeah. And there was a lot to like about his reign, yeah. about him and his marriage, but we don't concentrate on it because, you know, Edward I is the hammer of the Scots and, yeah. you know, all the rest, all of, all of the garbage that goes with that. We don't talk about some of these really actually quite interesting and effective people who yeah. don't fight battles necessarily or aren't very good at mm. it. You know? Yeah, I, I think that's 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 so true. And I think we often forget that medieval people were people. You know, they were like us. They were rounded individuals and three-dimensional and they... You know, they had families and they, you know, they loved people and cared about them. And yeah, you know, I I think we need to remember that they weren't just people who went off and won battles or lost battles. Mm. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But that's Edward, you know, he was definitely for family. And you look at with his nieces and his children and that, he was definitely, he was family orientated. He was. I mean, he had, seems to have had a great relationship with all of his older, you know, his five older sisters who lived into adulthood. And then because, of course, some of them were a lot older than him, he had nieces who weren't that much younger mm. his being declared nieces they were all closer to his age than their mother was and she was his sister Joan of Acre yeah he, he he did he seems to have loved his family and again that's something that I do always find likable about people I was going to ask you uh which of his favorites you preferred but I think that's become rather redundant question <laughs> because quite clearly you preferred yeah. Gaveston. Yeah, I've, I've written a biography of Hugh Despenser and he he fascinates me but I don't think I would actually want to meet him. <laughs> you know, one chronicler says that even the great English magnates were scared of Despenser and you know these were not men who scared easily. So he must have been pretty bad whereas I think Gaveston was possibly very irritating and haughty but he strikes me as someone who had just had a much sweeter nature all right so one last question should we talk about edward's death the problem with that sharon is if we talk about it i'll probably be here for another hour <laughs> it wasn't on the list of questions because derek and i were both are we going to or aren't we and i'm like i don't know to answer it as, as briefly as, as possible it's there's a lot of evidence that he died at Barclay Castle in September 1327, and he was then buried three months later in, in Gloucester. But there's also a surprisingly large amount of evidence that a lot of influential people believe that Edward was still alive years later, including his own half-brother, the Earl of Kent, and including the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London. So it actually turns into a great mystery because there's so much evidence, both that he died and that everyone at the time thought he was dead. But then years later, people started to think, hang on, is he really dead at all? And started to act on, on this belief that he was he was still alive. Have they ever opened the tomb? The tomb in, is it Worcester? Uh, Gloucester. I think it would be fascinating if we could ever get permission to open that tomb. It was, wouldn't it? You know, they talk about checking the bones of the princes in the tower. I'm like, no, Edward II. <laughs> I mean, but you know, when even the Archbishop Bishop of Canterbury says uh, nearly two and a half years after Edward's death, he tells the mayor of London Mm. in a letter that our liege Lord Edward of Carnarvon is alive and in good physical health and in a safe place. And you think, well, if an archbishop is saying that, that's a bit bizarre, isn't it? It's weird, isn't it, really? I mean... Yeah, it's very, very weird. And was was that something that was sort of mentioned only in private letters or was there any kind... Was there no cult or anything that people believing that he was alive. The odd thing is, really, is that all the English chroniclers of the 14th century wrote that he died at Berkeley. I mean, the the Red Hot Poker was a a minority opinion that came later. But all the English chroniclers of the Mm. 14th century said that Edward was suffocated or poisoned or strangled or died of illness or grief or natural causes. So they all wrote that, that he died at Berkeley Castle, even if they didn't really know how. And none of them seem to have picked Mm. up on this possibility that he was actually still alive years later. But yeah, there were some influential people who had known Edward really well. Like the Archbishop of of York had known Edward since he was 12, possibly even even longer, who who strongly believed that he was still alive to the point of acting on it, you know, and 
trying to send him letters and money and clothes in, in captivity. This is the problem, isn't it, with with, the, with being so long ago? And you, you you have evidence, but you know the evidence is almost never conclusive about anything. Kind of frustrating that we'll almost certainly never know. But then yes. it is intriguing. It is. It's one of those things. It's great to be able to actually look at it and go, was he, wasn't he, and look at all the arguments. My one argument against him surviving is, why didn't he try and take the throne back if he did survive? Yeah, but he didn't like being king, so... <laughs> I suppose, yeah. I mean, I, I, this that's, that's difficult. I mean, the Fieschi letters discovered actually in the 1870s says that Edward actually ended up in a, in a hermitage south of Milan called uh, Sant'Alberto di Butrio. And I, I suppose, you know, if Edward II, at least the king who would, who would dug ditches and thatch roofs and gone out to work with the peasants, it's perhaps more slightly believable that he would be OK in that kind of light than it would be for just about any other king of England. Hmm people believed he was still alive. We, we know that because they wrote, they, they, they committed that, the letters, but mm. I don't think we can ever be sure that Edward really was alive because there's never going to be any kind of evidence that would be conclusive. He's definitely dead yes, now. Yes, he's definitely yeah. dead now. <laughs> <laughs> Unless he's a time traveller. <laughs> don't go there, Sharon. Well, you, you've you've almost convinced me I should write a novel about this period. Oh, yeah, Derek. There's yeah. so much going it, on. It is a great period, yeah. It's really fascinating. I think what got me first into it was Michael Jackson's Medieval Murder Mysteries, yes. because they're set in the yeah. Second's reign. Yes, I started reading those a few years ago. I think I, I read most of them. And then in the later ones, Edward and Isabella and Dispenser and Mortimer, they all actually appear in Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Catherine, for such an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for, in, for inviting me and for you know asking me such fascinating questions. It's it's been great. Well, we've been very very pleased to have you. Yeah, it's great. I'm I'm really glad that you're doing it. It's a fantastic idea. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. Next time we'll be talking to novelist Stephen Mackay about his Robin Hood series and also finding out a little bit about his new series set in the time of Alfred the Great. In the meantime. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. And we look forward to having you with us again next time.